Alright, what is on going on everybody? Welcome back to this episode of the Weight Really Podcast. And today we are joined with Miss Deborah Leiter, who is a professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And if you want to give like a little rundown about yourself, like what you specialize in and and everything like that. Sure. Well, I'm an assistant professor here at the in the Department of Political Science, and I primarily study elections, parties, and voting behavior, mostly in Western Europe. All right. Yeah, pretty pretty interesting stuff. And this is what I'm majoring in as well, so I'm very, very interested and very glad to have you on the podcast. So with every guest that we have, we always start with some, like, goofy introductory questions. So the first one is, who is your favorite superhero and why? So I have two answers for you because my favorite superhero group has always been the X-Men. Okay. I always loved them. I love mutants. I love the variants in their... Uh, different powers. I love this sort of sense of them being outcasts. I love the fact that it focuses on so many of the political ramifications of what would happen if mutants entered society. Have you seen the Have you seen the new trailer for uh, Dark Phoenix? I have not. I'm really scared. I'll yeah. be honest with yeah. you. Uh, I think uh, for a lot of people around my age, there is a perfect manifestation of the X Men, which is the X Men uh, cartoon series. It was around in the '90s. And uh, the movies have been, I will say, a mixed success. You have, you know, the height of Hugh Jackman being really excellent as Wolverine. And you have some, you know, James Marsden as Cyclops things going on as well. Yeah, they changed the actor of uh, Professor Charles. And yeah, that was... Yeah. Yeah, it was a big difference, big change in that. All right. So the next one is, if you could have dinner with someone, anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? And, And also why? All right, so hard choice because there's so many interesting people in the world, but I have, probably this is the kind of thing that makes you a professor, I have a historical hero, okay, and that is Eleanor of Aquitaine. Uh, now, Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, was the queen of both France and of England. She initially was married uh, to the king of France and went on crusades with him, and then later decided he's not really doing it for me, she got the marriage annulled and married uh, Henry, uh, uh, who become King Henry I of England, 12 years her junior, oh my God. would go on to have an entire rivalry and start a civil war against her husband, and would raise, probably most famously, Richard the Lionheart. So I'd Why like, just like to talk, talk her. about her. She's amazing, isn't she? <laughs> I, I feel that she is a person that would have a lot of interesting stories to say. There's a great old movie with Katherine Hepburn called The Lion in Winter that's about her. That's definitely worth a watch. But I would just, I would like to hear stories of her life. She's a very interesting person. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, you, you hear stories all the time about people that do way less than that. Right, exactly. And, you know, she helped to create a single currency in uh, England. So there you go. Another important I- yeah, impact. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> Anyone something new. So the movie's called Lion The in- Lion in Winter. So recommendation for anyone listening. All right. So and then the next question is more for like you personally. So why why did you want to study political science and like what drew you to this whole field? Well, I've always been a politics nerd. Um, yeah. When I was a kid, my my parents got me Time for Kids, a Time magazine for kids. I always liked to read the newspaper. I started with the comic section, but moved on from there, and uh, loved it in high school. I had a great high school government teacher who, you know, told me to really consider political science. Same. Which was amazing. Like, you know, it was, I was in, 
regular government, and he said, well, you're going to take the AP exam, and then you're going to start with political science as your major. And I think what draws it to me is humanity is so messy. We're so complicated. And politics is an attempt to make us order. And for all of the terrible outcomes in the world, I have a suspicion that there was a reason these things were happening. And political science is the systematic study of that. Why is it that humans do what they do? Can we actually be ordered and organized given all of our different preferences? And the consistent answer I've found is yes, but. Yeah. That was... That was like the perfect answer that I was hoping for, literally. <laughs> but that's, and and you, you brought up something, but we haven't really gone into the interview questions yet, but you brought up something that just like sparked a thought in my head. How do you feel about people finding their news on social media outlets instead of finding their news in, in news like newspaper outlets and stuff like that? And how do you how do you think that sways people's opinions more? Well, I think there's a number of things to keep in mind is that while social media use is on the rise, and in fact, especially on the rise for people in your generation and mine, yes, I think we're right on the cusp of being in slightly different like generation. 20 years it's been. Yeah. And so it's something like the average, uh, about 20% of Americans uh, use Twitter, for example. But amongst people who are under the age of 25, it's closer to uh, 60%. And Facebook has a really high reach. It's, it's 60%. Uh, amongst uh, yeah, people under 25, it's around 80%. Also, all of you apparently use Snapchat all yeah. the time. Yeah, <laughs> so there's this really important generational difference. But, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, a lot of people use social media to get access to traditional news, too. So I'll see something referenced on social media, and it'll link me to the New York Times, too. Yeah. Where I get concerned is we have a tendency, regardless or not, to trust the people that we know. And to think that they're posting something that we can rely on. So if my friend posts a story from a more extreme source or less vetted source, and even something that's reasonably, you know, reliable, let's just pick on the Huffington Post, for example. Okay. Huffington Post posts a lot of news stories, um, hard news content, but they don't have the same journalistic ethos as something like the New York Times, right? And the, this is, you know, picking on an example on the left, because I think we hear a lot about the right. You know, Breitbart definitely does not have the same type of journalistic ethos that you would have for the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Someone posts something, I'm just going to trust that they've read it. And same. in fact, a lot of people, I, a friend of mine posted this great prank, just to see what happened, of people just read the headlines. That's- Absent anything else, the headlines don't tell us that much. So her great prank was... It was a really intriguing headline, and she said, what do you think? And people posted all these comments. You click on the link, and it said something like, there is no content <laughs> to this article. And it was such a wonderful experiment. I guarantee every comment was just people, like, irate, just going off. And that's, that's exactly how it is. When my friend sent me, send me something with just a headline, and I'm like, whoa, what in the world? And then I'll, like, I'll click on it, and I'll, I'll read it, because I, I also do... And this this definitely was a cause because of Professor Vernami. Mm-hmm. We in our class we have quizzes mm-hmm. every single uh, Tuesday, and it's date like news right. around the world, mostly concerning with the United States. And I feel like most people don't find their news with the best, with the most reputable sources. Sure. And I feel like that's a big problem with social media. But yeah. Well, I think it's the problem is is that you treat if 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 there's 20 tweets that you read, 
your tendency is to treat all 20 as equal. So you, you do have friends posting from, you know, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, etc. Great, reputable sources. Not that they're never flawed, but they have a journalistic ethos of accuracy. I view those as accurate as I, you know, view my friends posting, well, I saw a guy who said something different or, you know, post something from, I don't know, Drudge or uh, Daily Coast. Since we're reading them all in the same format, we're not going to think of them as different. And exactly. I think your point is exactly yeah. t- well taken. Exactly. <laughs> we weren't, yeah, we weren't really, that was, that was great. But so how, how the interview questions are structured for anyone listening is first we're, we're going to talk about things dealing with the United States and then, then we're going to talk about things dealing with um, Europe. Uh, m- more exact would be Brexit. And that's a big deal that people should know more about. So the first question, and this goes back to the social media thing, and for anyone listening, everyone knows that, I, I don't know, I have this like kick with social media, and I've talked about it in so many of my podcasts, but I think it's a great tool. I think it's it's an amazing tool, and I talked about this in my last one, but it, it, that's what it is. It's, it's a tool, but I think that a lot of people use it as a sort of like way to just get their like thing for fame and they just post outrageous things. So the, so the question is, do you feel as if social media and the rise of the internet is beginning to polarize individuals politically more now than ever? This is actually a big debate in political science right now. And beyond the social media question is a question of just how polarized is the American electorate. One thing we know for certain is that partisans are further apart than they have. And it's not just distance. It's worth keeping in mind that polarization has two pieces to it. One part of polarization, I think, is the one we all think about, which is people um, are farther apart ideologically. They share fewer things in common. But the other part of polarization that I think is just as important is that they share more preferences. So a person on the right, uh, two people on the right are going to have more things in common together um, than they've had before. So it's the parties becoming more unified Mm -hmm. and moving farther apart. Certainly we see that. The question we have, and where it gets harder to really have an answer, is that folks in the middle may or may not be more polarized than they have been. Right? There may or may not be fewer of them like we've, we've talked about. It just sort of depends on how you measure. And so I don't, have a, a, I don't come down strongly on one side or the other uh, on this issue because if something comes down to measurement, we should be really cautious about yeah. how we interpret it. But I do think it's worth keeping in mind that... Let's look at the turnout for the last election. It was about 52% or something like that. Incredibly high. However, that means that 48% of the country didn't turn out to vote. And I think that those 48 are worth keeping in mind. Now, some of them didn't turn out to vote for a host of reasons, but some of them didn't turn out to vote because they're not particularly politically active. So getting to the social media piece. Does social media make us more polarized? What I think social media does is it allows people to do two things. Find like-minded people and filter their information choices so that they don't have to hear what people exactly. on the other side have to say. I think so as well. So amongst amongst your more definite partisans, social media can create what we would call an echo chamber. I only talk to the people who share my preferences. We only share stories from media sources that share our preferences. And what this does, and this is the risk, is it fools us into thinking that more people share our preferences than do. And I think that that means that because all of our friends share our preferences, when you run into someone who doesn't, how do you feel about them? Yeah, exactly. So I think that 
most people still use social media to share recipes and follow Taylor Swift and uh, illegally download movies. Don't do that. Uh, (laughs) But amongst those who are politically active, social media can play this polarizing role. Yeah, and th- and that kind of leads into the next question. When when we uh, when you reference the kind of mob mentality, you find people that are like minded like yourself, mm-hmm. and this kind of leads to a question that's way far down the list. But is how do you feel about the overgrowing need for hushing or dismissing people when it comes to differences in political I- ideology re- uh, recently, and not in the not in the sort of nice way that right. yeah, it's it's more harsh and. And definitely, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. So, what do you, what do you feel about that? And do you think, what do you think is causing that? There does seem to be a mood uh, in this country, but not unique to this country mm-hmm. right now, of what I. This is not a political science term. This is my personal term. I call it um, not enoughism. And not enoughism is you have to. There's seems to be a mood amongst those who are most uh, most active that you have to be so fully on board with one side or the other. So um, let me just make up an example here. Um, I donate $10 to the Sierra Club, right? I like the environment. I donate $10 to the Sierra Club. Not enoughism would say, well, the Sierra Club is, you know, not as environmentally active and not as dedicated to the cause as, say, the PETA, People with the Advocate Treatment of Animals. So you're not environmental enough. Why did you only donate $10? It should have been 100 Yeah. This is what I call not, not enoughism. Once again, this is a personal term, not a political science term. I think it's I think it's great term. It's uh, the perfect way uh, to describe it. And I think that some of this has come from one of the things that polarization will tend to is it will turn issues that are multifaceted and across a dimension. So, you know, a, 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 when we think about left and right, right, you could be far left, middle left, moderate left, center, moderate right. People have turned that into left or right. So they're turning complex issues into yeses and noes. Yeah. And it's thing. easier to hear, understand, and it's easier to tweet about, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not how most issues fall. Most people fall in the middle on most issues, and most issues have compromised positions. But that's not the mood we're in. And I do think that some of that has come from social media. Some of it has come from polarization. <sighs> Some of it has also come from the elites. Political elites have been sending sim- simpler messages to their, their voters. And I think that all of those contribute to this sense that you're with me or you're not. Yeah. And I think that's where this idea that there's been a suppression of dissent has come from. It's not that... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not this. It's not that one side or the other gets to say something. It's the fact that we're making sides to begin with. Yeah, I think, I think that, that whole idea, and I, I'm blaming social media because, I mean, that's that's the main thing that's on the rise, and it, it is on the rise, so it's only been 20 years, and so I, I may be being too harsh on, on the whole, the whole uh, platform, but I do, I've noticed that quite a lot, is that you can't be in the middle. People want, like, you to pick a side, and if you pick a side, that means that they categorize you with everything that they believe in, and then... It, it's just, it's a, it's a weird, weird change in how people, how politics works. Mm-hmm. So, and we talked about this a little bit. The next question is, what do you, what's the reason behind the United States low, t- low turnout rate? And we talked about this the first week in class. The, and it was, I n- did not know the numbers, but it was crazy. 
and what ways would you propose to combat them? And I ha- I have a few that, and I talked to Professor Venami about, and I I think there's some good ways that we could combat that. Whenever you think about turnout, you always have to think about it at two levels. There's the individual level. So what I individually do, what you individually do. And then there's also what we'd say the contextual level, the institutional level. What are my incentives to turn out to vote in this district, in this county, in this state, in this country? Individually, I've always taken the belief that you're always going to have some people who want to turn out to vote and some people don't. What you have to do if you're trying to get more people to turn out is reduce the cost to vote and increase the incentives, yep. whatever those incentives are. This is, this is the simple individual story. The more that you can convince people that voting is important through a number of means, the more people will turn out. And the easier you make it for people to vote, the more likely they are to turn out to vote. The problem here, of course, is individual decisions are really hard to... Uh, make changes to, right? We can do certain things. We can, you know, increase transportation access. We can create voting holidays. At the institutional level, though, that's where we can make changes. That's So I can't individually go out and pay every yeah. every citizen $2 to turn out to vote. Um, or the reverse, charge everyone $2 if they don't turn out. I can do that as an individual, but it's much easier to do it as an institution. So why is U.S. turnout so low? I There's a few factors that I think. One, we have... We have so many elections in this country. We have so many elections compared to other countries. Um, this is a favorite example of mine. It was from uh, Russ Dalton's book. And he was living in Irvine at the time. So he said between 2004 and 2010 in Oxford, in the United Kingdom, you could have voted a total of three or four times. In one year, in Irvine, California, you could have voted a total of 12 times. Yeah. We ask people to turn out to vote a lot, and I think the instinct is the more people have a chance to vote, the more they'll see it as important. But that's not how people view those kind of tasks. Yeah, I think with, with the increase in, in votes, it kind of dilutes the, the whole need to vote. Right. And so. so when do you get really high turnout at lo- for local elections? It's when they're aligned with big national elections. So if you want, I mean, so Kansas City had higher turnout in the mayoral primary than most of us expected. That, yeah, that was... It was about 19%, which was much higher than I thought it would be. 19% is still an abysmally low number. Um, and that's 19% of registered voters. That's worth keeping in mind. So how do you get turnout to be high there? Well, turnout in Kansas City in the midterm election was really high. It was, it was in the 50, 50% range. So if you want people to vote at a higher rate, you have to start aligning those elections. You can't keep having these special elections. So that's one. Yeah, It's really challenging because the U.S. is really federal and really local, and every single layer wants to have elections. Second piece, of course, is access. We know that the U.S. has a number of barriers to, to turning out to vote. Um, we do not have automatic registration. It's self, uh, self-created self registration. We know that that affects turnout. We can just look at cross-national uh Results there, we do have ID laws, um, etc. And interestingly, unlike a lot of countries, we don't have a national ID card. Yeah. Right, it so... It's pretty confusing if people ask for ID and you, I have to give them my military ID. And they're like, uh, no, 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 I meant your driver's license. I'm like, it's the same this, thing. This gets me on a base. It should get me... <laughs> exactly, a, yeah. A, a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's weird. So yeah, so that's, that's another difference is just by having ID requirements which aren't so uncommon, 
But this, the problem is, is that in co other countries that have ID requirements, everyone is automatically issued an ID. So things like that. Um, yeah. We can reduce costs by uh, making it easier to register to vote, automatically registering to vote uh, people, uh, having a national registration database, which I don't think we're going to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, allowing same-day registration, allowing multiple votes, uh, allowing mail-in ballots. These are all things, and one can choose. You don't have to do all of them. Mm -hmm. The other piece, and this is the hardest one, Final one, I promise, uh, is incentives to vote. The U.S. Yeah, I was gonna... yeah, exactly. So the U.S. has a number of what we might consider disincentives to turn out to vote. One, of course, is our multiple elections. But the vast majority of districts, for example, are non-competitive. Right? Con people in Congress are re-elected at a rate of 90%. Oh, my gosh. Right? I in, did not know that. In Missouri, and I just happened to know this because I did a paper on this, in Missouri, in the last election for the Missouri State House and the Missouri State Senate, only four total districts uh, for the Senate were considered competitive, and only about about eight were considered competitive for the House out of 100-odd seats. Wow. If you know who's going to win an election, yeah, or you have a really strong prior, my need to turn out to vote is lower. Exactly. So a big one is just we have non-competitive elections. Uh, there's also an a important but not huge portion of the population, and I would say this just from research, who don't feel attached to either party, who just don't believe those parties represent them, and they are also less likely to turn out to vote. The relationship between party system size and turnout is really complicated. Yeah. It sounds like a complicated issue. But, but attachment to party is something we know drives turnout. So we have this, this system. We yeah. have a complex system that a lot of people don't understand. We have a lot of non-competitive elections, and we have at least some voters who don't feel attached to their options. Yeah. So wow. given that, 50-some percent turnout sounds great. <laughs> some things that, things that we talked about in class, we talked about one specific thing that stood out to me, and I, I, do, I do agree 100%. I think that automatic registration would be insanely helpful because a lot of people as as easy as, as it is to register a lot of people just don't want to go and register and then the second thing and this one's kind of kind of odd but i think it was it switzerland or new zealand that has like an insane turnout rate because if you don't show up this is australia australia okay and and yeah they have you have to pay a price if you don't show up to vote mm -hmm. and i feel like even even just like something like twenty dollars will be like will be that tide that will change people will be like i don't want to pay twenty dollars it's not that big of a deal I'll just go and vote and I, I also feel as if that it would make people want to be more involved in the politics of the united states so we definitely know compulsory voting has a real benefit to turnout you know australia's turnout rates are around 90 some percent that's insane and the, the fee is not that high it's it is i think around 20 20 to 30 dollars i'd have to double check what it is right now because that's not an insane price but no. it's like i don't want to pay that for voting for not voting yeah yeah exactly it's it, voting is relatively easy i'm just gonna go ahead and do it um we do know that you actually do have to have some fairly significant punishment for it to truly be effective okay. if you just say voting is compulsory which does happen or the threat is really minor you don't really get much of a bump so there has to be the compulsion has to be real okay and for anyone listening when professor uh, Leiter was talking about the cost and the benefits the cost is simply like transportation to the polls and like the benefits would be 
Like, is the person that you're going to vote for really going to make big changes and stuff like that? So, like, things things of that, like, that does make a huge impact for people that, that a lot of people don't really recognize. And how do you feel about age? Age when it comes to... I, I didn't have that on here, but that just popped in my head because we also spoke about this in, in class. How do you think age correlates with the amount of people that go and vote? Here's one of the great cross cross national consistencies of this world: uh, young people don't vote very much. Uh, so this is great. So if we're looking for that one thing that connects all the democracies of the world, getting young people to turn out to vote is a challenge, um, and it comes for a number of reasons. Um, one is you're more likely to be registered the more later you, uh, the, the longer you live the place. Young people okay. move around yeah, yeah. a lot. Uh, you're more likely to be registered if someone helps you register. So people who get married and their spouse is registered. Young people don't marry at the same high rates. Uh, and then uh, uh, students live at colleges. There's exactly. often a lot of confusion about where they can register and how to register. You're more likely to vote if you go with someone. So there's that family or spouse effect as well. And then finally, I think part of it is also still buy-in. For a lot of young people, it's how will this policy affect me? And it does, because one of the things we know, another real consistent thing, is that groups that turn out at higher rates get more policy representation than groups that don't. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. Uh, yeah. But one that I did not realize, and it sounds so common sense, but that makes so much sense that at me, I'm, de- I'm like not stable at, like at all in right. going to college and stuff. I don't like have like a distinct place where, I, where I'm going to stay, and then after college, who knows where I'm going to go. So I mean, yeah, exactly. I and and in uh, my cl- class with uh, Professor Vanami, he did a vote, and I think half the people raised their hand that they didn't vote, mm-hmm. and he asked like like why, and someone was saying along the lines that they don't think their vote matters, mm-hmm. and I I feel as if that's a huge issue, definitely in this time, like right now, is that people feel as if their vote doesn't matter, mostly with the uh, election between. Uh, Hillary and Donald Trump, they, uh, she won the popular, but the Electoral College. Um, Donald Trump won the, won the Electoral College, so mm-hmm. a lot of people were into that. Yeah, absolutely. I think a confusion about how your vote matters, and the Electoral College system is complex, and we're the only country that uses it. It is. I had to, I had to read, like, multiple papers to even understand, like, why we had it, and it makes sense from, from like, the beginning. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense if you read it, but now we're in a way more complex system. It's, it's pretty crazy. Well, and the thing I always point out with Electoral College is, you know, back when it was created, so, you know, it's the early 19th century. If you're from Rhode Island... You and everyone else from Rhode Island share a huge amount of commonalities. You're often of the same religion. You often share similar you know, economic preferences. At this point, you're all related. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it makes sense to represent states. It really exactly. does. States are a good stand-in for a huge amount of political preference. Now, I would argue that uh, my colleagues who live over in Johnson County in Kansas and... Uh, I and my friends who live over here in Jackson County, Missouri, probably have a lot more in common together than my Johnson County friends do have with Wichita colleagues yeah. and that I might have with, say, Boone County colleagues. Definitely. Definitely. So state may be less of a representative than it used to be. Yeah. I think that's also a, a big... The reason behind it is probably because we have way more people living in the United States now, like an Absolutely. insane amount of people. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I, yeah. 
And then this also brings me to my next question. And if you would, like, for the audience, just give a quick explanation on, on like, our regime in the United States and just... Sure. So, the United States is considered a, a liberal democracy, and so by that we mean that it is a democracy um, with certain types of civil rights and civil liberties protections. It's structured as a presidential system, uh, which means that the president and Congress are elected uh, directly and separately. And it's also highly federal. This is a really critical part to understand the United States. Um, the national government in Washington, D.C. has the most authority, but there are also important decisions made at the state level. And each of those states um, has its own institutional variation and structure. And so, and it's also true that I believe, I'm pretty sure you said this, that we are the only democracy never to have a regime change. No, no, presidential democracy. Okay, yeah. Okay, presidential okay. democracy. Okay. Yeah, no, it, there's, there's, there's plenty of other democracies that have maintained a stale democracy, but uh, this, this is a reference to uh, Juan Lentz, for any of your <laughs> listeners who are uh, political science nerds. Gotcha. Um, Juan Lentz, when he was writing in 1990, made the observation that only the United States had a stable presidential Democratic okay. Energy. Okay. Okay. And do you, do you think we'll ever? Do you think within the next one hundred years, the way, let's just say, we're guessing with the way sure. that our polarization and is, is steadily increasing, and do you think we'll ever have regime change within the next hundred years? And so the answer for this, I think, is twofold. One is never say never. Yeah. Okay. Regime change comes when things go so badly. Um, that the system can't correct itself. This is a little bit of underselling of what, what regime change is, but in many ways that's what I think what happens is when a regime is no longer able to respond to crises for a number of reasons, regime change becomes possible. Okay. That being said, the other thing we know about regimes is that the longer you stay to a regime, the more likely you are to stay that regime. So a history of democracy predicts democratic stability. And the U.S., for all that it has a very complex political system, we've never been able to export it to other countries uh, effectively, is, is reasonably good at being self-corrective. Now, we've had plenty of tense places in our history. I always think it's interesting that we consider the, the U.S. to have this consistent history, and yet we had a civil war. Oh, yeah, very, yeah, that's very true. Right? So we've actually had periods where the system was not self-correcting. It survived. And because wow. part of the United States continued, we continue it to be continuously running. I maybe never we thought about that. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe the United States should be considered United States. United States one yeah. is actually not. Is is Articles of Confederation United States? United States two is constitutional United States through the Civil War. United States three is Civil War to present day. So yeah, so we've never had a regime change, but we've had. Plenty we, we've of, had plenty. Yeah, we. I mean, arguably, we had a regime change right at the start because the Articles yeah. of Confederation did okay, not yeah, work. That, yeah, that's really true. Um, and then I would say is that there's been really important major places of tension in the U.S. where our democracy was shaken. The Civil Rights Movement um, is one of those places. Okay. So we have a technically we have a constitution that has been running since it was created. However. There have been plenty of moments. There have been plenty of places where the U.S. has been shaken. And what's amazing, of course, is that we've continued, and that's because democracy um, predicts democracy. So there is something self-correcting to our institutions, but they need to be supported. This is the big thing, I think, with regime change. Institutions are powerful. They matter hugely in what we do and how we behave. But they have to be protected. 
if the U.S. continues to protect its institutions and how they function, we are unlikely to see a regime change. Okay. But I would say never say never is the correct thing. Yeah. You have to remind yourself that under a crisis, the United States has to be able to respond. And we have to be able to trust each other to do that. Yeah, literally on Wednesday you were talking about mm-hmm. how regime change are very dramatic. Mm-hmm. And then also, there's always a way that a regime can change without the control of its, it, the country which we are in. And that's always the external, mm-hmm. which another country changes sure. it for us. And that, that's always... No one knows, really. Right. So, this this next one is a very big issue, and it's, it's pretty much the only thing I have about uh, Europe at the moment, because it's such a big issue, and I wanted everyone like listening to realize that this is, this is a huge, huge thing. So, if you could, for, for the audience, give a little rundown about Brexit, and then also, how it'll affect us here in the United States, and also everyone in the world's global economy more than we actually think. Sure. So Brexit um, is a portmanteau for the British exit from the uh, European Union. Uh, In June in 2016, the United Kingdom held a referenda, an advisory referenda, to ask citizens whether or not they wanted to remain in the European Union or to leave the European Union. And the Leave campaign was successful in getting just above a majority of folks in the UK to vote to leave. It wasn't a huge victory, but it was a clear victory. Um, What has happened since is the UK voted to leave. Uh, They uh, chose as their prime minister to lead them, Theresa May of the Conservative Party. And then she... Uh, activated Article 50, which you may, maybe, maybe have heard or not, Article 50 is part of the EU treaties that allow member states to leave. So when we say activate Article 50, it's activating the process for the UK to leave the EU. And that's a big, that's a big deal, too. Big deal. Yeah. <laughs> because they were talking about having a hard Brexit if things didn't go their way, and that's, that's even worse. Yes, and so what has happened is that uh, Theresa May activated Article 50 and they began negotiations. She negotiated a deal with the European Union, and she cannot get parliamentary support for her deal, nor has any other deal been able to maintain, get, uh, achieve a majority support. So her deal doesn't have a majority, and neither does any other. And the problem, of course, being is that when you activate Article 50, it sets a time clock. And that time clock has already expired. And they've had to go to the EU twice to didn't, ask for extensions. Didn't they have one... Recently? Like, yeah, they had the second one recently. Yeah. Yes. So now the Brexit date moved from March to April to now Halloween, October 31st. Wow. And the joke amongst uh, political scientists is Theresa May wanted to make sure we had a spooky Halloween, and she sure was successful. <laughs> so, and I, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this whole situation. I've, I've read a lot of things about it, but for... It, it definitely sounds way better if a, if a professor says it because it's, it's 100% more reputable. But I, I want to run this by it. Sure. Isn't it because they feel like they're being shorted in the EU? They're feeling as if they are paying way more f- for like little countries that are involved in EU as well? Because the, them and Germany are kind of, kind of the big, they're the high rollers in the EU. They're big dogs, yep. I would say they and Germany and, and France are the big economies mm-hmm. of the EU. That is absolutely the feeling of a lot of people in the uh, UK, is not just that they were paying more than their fair share, 
But I think to a certain extent, they felt that they didn't weren't getting their fair share out of it. Yeah. I think is the okay. bigger thing, is that the UK felt that one, it could go alone. Not everyone in the UK. This is this amongst the the folks who wanted to leave. The UK could go alone. The UK has a political and economic history that is being in some way suppressed by the European Union, uh, and that it wasn't worth the cost to their sovereignty and national uh, uh, national, uh, control. Joining the European Union is actually a pretty fraught decision in many ways for the UK because they have something called parliamentary supremacy, where acts of parliament are the most powerful law in the land. They don't have a constitution, uh, written constitution, I should say, excuse me, um, anything that Parliament passes is the law of the land. The only thing that has ever subjoined that to overridden over that is joining the European Union. Because Ooh. now acts of the European Union over, uh, over uh, overweigh parliamentary Whoa. acts. No checks and balances to having a big... Well, in some way, they've, a, a new check and balance was added to the UK. That's insane. And so that's, I think, you know, it's, it's hard for us to understand because we have... So many different agencies in the U.S. that uh, check each other. President, Congress, Supreme Court, states. All of that is underneath the Constitution. That all goes away to a certain extent. It is Parliament and the acts of Parliament that are most important. That's insane. So take that and then change it. Then, of course, you will hear... Why are these... Who are these tiny countries? Nigel Farage is a member of the European Parliament... And the leader of UKIP, or was the leader of UKIP. And at one point, <laughs> to the uh, head of the, I believe it was the European Commission, who was uh, Belgian, I believe, he said, uh, nobody knows who you are. No one knows what you stand for. You're a damp dishcloth. Ooh. Wow. And no one in the UK needs you. This is an extreme version of how a lot of folks in the UK felt. <laughs> yeah. I feel, and that, that's a perfect example but I've seen a switch mm-hmm. in the way that, and I'm sure there's always been like like dirty campaigning, like there's mm-hmm. always people pointing out other people's flaws. But more recently, I've seen a switch in the the normal, like calling people out, saying that their views are wrong and stuff like that, to a kind of calling out their their like their personality and like who they are as a person, and just like saying unbelievable things. And what, do do you also believe that that's that's because of the change in polarization between us? Or why why would you do you think it's more of a headline getter? You think it's people hear it and they're like, okay, I'm gonna listen to this press conference because they're more than likely gonna say something crazy. This isn't a po- uh, there's a there's a lot of argument about whether or not campaigning has gotten more negative, right? There's there's a mix mixed bag on this. Um, very often what we see is the first people to go negative are uh, people in the opposition. Okay, yeah. Right? Because if you're an incumbent, if you're in government, you have a lot of advantages going into any election. So how do you get attention? How do you get people to switch their position? Uh, You have to first get people to listen to you. And second, you have to get them to start thinking negatively of the incumbent. Because people generally like the status quo. Yeah. Whatever they say about it. And you'll hear a lot of different things. People are, uh, this is a Terry Pratchett quote, which I've always loved, um, and I think captures voters. People pretty want uh, yesterday, or tomorrow, to be pretty much like yesterday. Right? So that's always been, it's, it's uh, yes, Terry Pratchett is a humorist who writes fantasy novels, but I've always felt that that was the most 
succinct summary of how most people think of the political world. Yeah, it's insane. So, if that's the view, the view of the world, the incumbent is that status quo. Things are going fine. Congress, just to pick on the U.S., we know that Congress has, I think it's about 20% approval right now. I haven't checked. It's been down as low as 12. Oh, my gosh. The average person approves of their congressman at above 60%. We like our representative, even if we don't like the institution. So, I, if I'm challenging that person, have a huge, huge problem to overcome. I had to get people to listen to me, and I had to get them to start thinking natively about uh, him or her. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. But then once I go negative, yeah. Yeah. guess what that incumbent is going to do? Do the same exact thing. Exactly. It's and I think because thing. of the nature of media today, those things are captured and, and served and sold really quickly. So why is Nigel Farage, for example, so negative? He represents a teeny tiny party in the UK. And now we're talking, people, people are talking about talking him. we're talking about That's him. A, Yeah, okay. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Wow. Well, is, that, that's pretty much, that's ins- this, wow. That was really, really insightful. Oh my gosh. Is there anything that you would, you would like, like to let the listeners know before, before we end this one? Uh, I guess I would say, uh, just since we're talking about Brexit, there's a lot of confusion about what it is and what's going on and what will happen. You should not feel unique in being confused. It is a very confusing situation. We, as a, uh, experts, have been surprised a lot. And those in government in the United Kingdom and those negotiating over in the European Union have been constantly surprised as well. So don't feel overwhelmed by something like Brexit. Whenever you find something so complicated, look for the good old question, who benefits? What's going on? A large part of Brexit still remains partisan infighting between the two large parties in the UK. So if you're trying to understand why all this is happening, keep in mind that it actually is still actually really explainable. We, yeah. know, we know why it's going on, even if we can't always predict what's going on. So never feel too so confused by politics. Just ask yourself the question, who benefits? And that will answer a lot of your questions. That, yeah, I think that's a great, <laughs> great way to put it. Yeah. Who, who benefits? That, yeah, because that's, that's the reason that I began to understand Brexit. It's like why they would benefit from leaving. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and you just ask <laughs> just the, the big question, what makes us political scientists, is we recognize who can be a lot of different kinds of people, institutions, and groups. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the This podcast went way, way <laughs> perfect. I did ah, I was so good. I, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And for all of you guys, we will have a podcast next Wednesday. And make sure to leave a review and a rating, and I will see you guys next Wednesday.